welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hi, this is Addison Qualley. Today's episode is The Accidental Economist. I'm here with Keith Wiener, CEO of Monetary Metals. And Keith, your journey into becoming an economist wasn't a direct one. How did you end up in the field of economics? You know, um, I went to school for computer science. I was your like classic computer nerd. Actually dropped out and uh, never thought that I would go back to school for anything, let alone uh, a so-called soft uh, you know, field like economics. I dropped out because I wanted to build a software company like so many of my heroes before me. So I built a company called Diamondware, founded in 1994. I sold that in 2008 to Nortel Networks. They were uh, at one point the largest company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The transaction closed August 19th, 2008. And as a historical footnote, we were the last acquisition that Nortel ever closed. There were several other acquisitions in the process that I knew of because I knew the CEOs that did not close. And then uh, obviously, as we all know, the wheels began to come off in uh, fall of 2008. Uh, so I started to at first just watch the news. I'd come into all this money. I, I, I sold the company for quite a lot. You started to, started to watch the news and then read the more serious, you know, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times type publications, and then a lot of books from a lot of the usual suspects just to figure out how to protect myself. And the more that I read, the more that I thought nobody is actually trying to get to the root of this thing. Everybody's kind of starting in the middle and spinning around. Well, you see, we have too much money, whatever. Eventually came across the writings of a professor that I eventually you know, went to study under, which is a, uh, an old Hungarian professor named Antal Fekete. Um, saw that he was teaching a course in Hungary, got on a plane on pretty short notice, went over and um, became a student and eventually earned a, a non-accredited, but the work was real anyway, a PhD in monetary economics. So yeah, it's interesting. Your path into economics wasn't, you didn't go through uh, the college route. You really um, were going your own path in software, and then it just became something of great interest to you that you had a great desire to discover the truth about. Well, I think, you know, like everything else, um, at least for me, but I assume most people are like this, it's really hard to study something and get passionate about it and get deep into it if you don't see the importance of it. So, you know, when I was the, you know, the age of a university student, I was just obsessed with computers and what you could get a computer to do. And that was still relatively early days. And most of the really cool things that computers were later to do were, were ahead of us. And I was just obsessed with you get computers to do graphics and get computers to do audio and animation and do you know intelligent things and um and all that kind of stuff and you know if you had pitched the idea of economics to me back you know so i, I graduated from high school in 1985 dropped out of school ultimately in uh spring of 1990 you know and we're talking to me, talking to me about economics at that time yeah you know i, I would have gotten certain things i suppose but i wouldn't have really seen it just seemed like a bunch of fluff which of course is partly testimony to where I was in my life and what I was focused on, but also testimony to uh, what mostly constitutes the field of economics even today, which is a whole lot of uh, fluff and rubbish anyway. Right, so were you, were you able to discern like some truth in economics or be able to ascertain through the fluff and get to something more concrete and provable? 
I, you know, I, I, I became a student of Ayn Rand of, of the philosophy of, of objectivism in 1986. And so through that, uh, you know, she speaks very well of, of uh, Mises. So I became somewhat aware of the Austrian school and, and certainly the idea of liberty. So as somebody said to me in 1989, you know, we're going to raise all the wages by, um, you know, just passing a minimum wage law. I would have said it doesn't work that way. I would have said, I probably would have said the same argument then as I now, which is if you try to force somebody to pay more than what something's worth, they're not going to pay more than, you know, they just will lay the, person, the worker off and not, there won't be a job at all. Like, I, you know, I could see that. I probably could have seen that at that time. It's hard to, hard to put yourself in the frame of mind of, you know, what were you thinking 30 years ago, you know? But so, you know, so I understood things like that, but I didn't really care about economics as a science. I guess I'm not, I'm not sure I would have thought, I would have agreed that economics was a science or could be a science at that time. You know, so I saw nuggets of truth, the propaganda of the, what I, I now call them the court economists. These are people that, they're not really doing economics, although they might have degrees in economics or might once have done. And now they basically exist to either advise the central planners on how to centrally plan better, purportedly better, or they exist purely as propaganda voices to sell the awful things that our government's doing uh, and try to sell it as, as as if it's good. You know, I, I certainly would have been skeptical of a Paul Krugman or, um, you know, Samuelson, whoever the big, you know, statist propagandist would have been at any given era, but, you know, just not, not that interested in it. Right. Do you think the um, being able to uh, to learn about Ayn Rand has been helpful in understanding monetary economics? Yes, because, you know, I, I think everybody, I hopefully or assume everybody has at least some awareness. She wrote this book called Atlas Shrugged, which is still, I believe, on the bestseller lists after, what has it been, 60, 63 years. It was published in 1957. And that, you know, this was a, a novel about a kind of a dystopian future of America where the government just becomes more and more greedy and aggressive and is persecuting businesses of every kind and everything. Businesses are failing and, you know, the, the once vital entrepreneurs are all disappearing one by one. It's kind of a mystery story, uh, romance story and um, a bit of an economics lesson. I think everybody's aware of that. That book, Library of Congress in 1990, did a, uh, a survey asking what was the most influential book in your life. Unsurprisingly, the Number one, far and away number one, I think. But Atlas Shrugged was number two. Wow. And um, so I, I would assume most people would be aware of that. And so Ayn Rand was, you know, uh, is believed to be a libertarian-ish uh, economy, you know, uh, or thinker, although she disavowed the, the libertarians of her day and, and Murray Rothbard. But the part that, that interests me more, and then so she wrote a book called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, in which there appears an essay by a young Alan Greenspan decades before, let's say that would have been in the mid-1960s, so probably at least two decades before he became Fed chairman, and in fact, probably a decade before he even left the private sector to, you know, to go to the Fed at all. Um, and he wrote this whole article about gold and how, you know, governments don't like gold because gold allows people to, uh, you know, avoid the, the worst ravages of the government's dishonest money and uh, the barometer and, and all these things that he was saying you know, back in the 1960s. And then, of course, he becomes Fed chairman and promptly forgets everything that he was able to articulate so clearly, you know, in that, in that piece, you know, decades earlier, either forgot or decided that he didn't like 
the form of you because it was inconvenient because he became a court economist himself. There's a, a not so well understood part of objectivism, uh, which is the study of human cognition, uh, and it's called epistemology. The takeaway from that, I think, really is a certain discipline of thought, a certain you must define concepts in a clear, very clear way, and you must define them by essentials. And if you fail in that, then everything turns to mush. And so, um, you know, people who read my writings know that I don't call the dollar money. In fact, I'll even risk a certain amount of awkwardness in my writing um, in order to avoid calling the dollar money. And the reason is money is, number one, the most marketable commodity, and the dollar is not a commodity, it's a credit. And number two, money is the extinguisher of debt, and the dollar cannot extinguish a debt. The dollar is an IOU. If you pay a debt using an IOU, you shift the debt. You do not make the debt go out of existence. You get yourself out of the debt loop, but the debt continues. Uh, just between other parties, and so if you if you take that kind of discipline of thought seriously, it makes you forces you like any discipline, I suppose, forces you to go deeper and have a a deeper understanding of things, and and from that, you know, at least it, then it becomes possible to have you know, kind of a new view and a, and a, and a, mon a proper monetary science, which I think is is um, largely lacking uh, you know, in the world today. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I think that from what I can tell, your your precision with your words and your concepts, um, and then bringing them to apply in, in in terms of the monetary economics world has allowed you to look at things differently than many of those that have come before you. And so, take us from Diamondware. You you finish selling Diamondware. You then go down this rabbit hole of learning about economics. You study with Fekete. You learn about gold. And then what what leads you to then, I mean, it's one thing to get into economics and gold. It's another to then go ahead and start your own company. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, you know, everybody has a different motivation and, and point of view, I guess, and their you know, personal values and personality and, uh, and, and all that. And I guess there are a lot of people who study as a field as not a means to an end, it is the end. And these are people that become academics, become professors, become perhaps scientists. And, and that isn't me. For all that now, I have a non-accredited PhD, but a PhD nevertheless. I don't consider myself to be an academic. I mean, I've written papers. I've presented at academic conferences and universities. Probably do a lot more of that in my life later. Um, but I don't consider myself to be an academic, at least not first. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a guy that... You know, so I, I, I think fundamentally everybody sees problems in the world around them unless they're just completely blind and, um, you know, they wake up in the morning and have some alcohol and go to a job they hate and drink some more and then they come home and drink themselves to oblivion. But unless, unless that's your little existence, everybody sees problems in the world. Most people, what do they do when they see a problem? They just kind of whine a little bit to, to, their, uh, to their friends or to their family and then they turn the TV on and, and uh, you know, forget about it. Some people think when they see a problem that they want to lobby the government to fix the problem for them or fix the problem for society. And the entrepreneur is that crazy guy who says, I see a way to make money by solving this problem. You know, the, the, the key thing I saw in my, my study of economics was that our monetary system is failing. And I don't mean, well, 
sooner or later they're going to print their way to infinity and prices are going to skyrocket and it's going to be a reset and all the people with the gold are going to become billionaires and uh, and and take over all the Ferraris and all the penthouse suites and the skyscrapers. Uh, by failing, I mean, and, and you can see it right now in, in several obvious statistics and then a few other less obvious statistics. One obvious statistic, the interest rate has collapsed. When I started my career, uh, around about 1990, the standard advice of any financial advisor would have been put aside 10% of your salary. You know, if you keep doing that religiously throughout your entire, you know, starting at the age of 20 or 21, by the time you get to 65, you'll have something like a million dollars, I think was the number in those days. Then you need to live on that million dollars in retirement. Of that million dollars, like 80 or 85% of that was not what you set aside from your salary, it was the compounding of the interest. And, and today, you know, basically post-2008, we just take for granted there isn't any interest to be had. You know, if you, if you were more sophisticated about a treasury bond, you could get some. But even the treasury bond was, was paying one point, 10-year bond was paying 1.8% in January. It's now paying 0.7%. Wow. So you know, interest rates have totally collapsed. And then the rest of the world is even worse. In Europe, it's negative. In, in um, the UK, it's either zero or negative. Japan is zero or negative. Uh, Switzerland is quite negative. So the interest rate totally collapsed. Nobody asked the question, number one, what is the cause of this collapse? And then number two, what are the effects? Well, one of a science here, we should be asking things like cause and effect. Uh, so that's the first thing that's readily available, readily visible. You don't need a PhD in economics. You don't need to learn to tell you the interest rate has, has collapsed. Number two is that the debt has gone absolutely, you know, super critical, like a nuclear reactor, right before it, it blows up, you know, goes super critical and things get much hotter. You know, all the gauges in the control room are, are just going haywire at that point. You know, we now have what is it, 27 trillion in debt, but we're adding debt at such a rate at this point that we've gone from, in the Bush days, people were saying, oh my God, look at the deficit, and it was 400 billion. And then by the end of Bush and certainly into Obama, it was basically a trillion. And now, COVID, we're looking at, uh, I think, $6 trillion deficits. So, you know, everybody just shrugs at this and say, yeah, that's fine, that's normal, whatever, what's new? But wait a minute, really? Can we just dismiss that and say that's fine? It isn't fine. There's a problem with that. Um, so, so those are two obvious things. Then the third one that I like to talk about a lot is marginal productivity of debt. So this is the answer to the Wall Street Journal view, the um, you know, sort of mainstream on the conservative side view. We just have to grow our way out of the debt. Well, the problem is growth is fueled by debt. You borrow to grow. And so then that, that should lead, going to take a scientific view of this whole thing, that should lead one to ask the question, okay, well, if we borrow a new dollar of new debt, how much new GDP is that add? And so that's marginal productivity of debt. How much debt, how much GDP is added for a dollar borrowed or change in GDP divided by change in debt? It's something anybody could calculate slightly, you know, uh, technical, but basically anybody could do it. Um, nobody does, nobody in the mainstream does. So if you Google it, you'll see my articles and my charts, basically on the first page of Google search results. And the, the cut to the chase, the trend of marginal productivity of debt has been falling um, since at least 1950, which is the oldest data I can, I can get on the internet for free anyway. So we have uh, 
70-year um, falling trend, which means we're getting less and less juice for each fresh new dollar of, of squeeze. And uh, that's a problem. I mean, I don't think you need to be an economist to say, wait a minute, it's falling. What happens when it gets to zero? Does anybody ask questions like that? So I wrote an article called The Heat Death of the Economic Universe and making an analogy to physics about that. But um, yeah, anyway, so, so these are some of the things that I think uh, you know people should be looking at and uh, and thinking about. It is funny. I mean, I've I've uh, been a fan of economics for a long time, and I got to tell you, I I didn't notice the interest rate was falling pathologically. I did. Everybody notices the debt is skyrocketing, but then again, there is that Wall Street Journal view where it's like, oh, we just throw our way out, or things seem to be fine. But um, it is pretty fascinating that. I mean, you picked up on those things. I, I, they are. I don't think they're totally that obvious. Um, people miss them. They're obvious. They're out there, but people don't totally realize that they're these serious problems. How does monetary metals or starting monetary metals does address these problems? You're saying, and and that's and you started the company. When I saw when I saw the problem, I said, okay, well, you don't have an extinguisher of debt in the system, and that means the debt. It's not that the debt happens to be rising exponentially, and if only we elected better leaders, it's the debt necessarily is growing out of control. And that's, as we would say in the software world, that's a feature, not a bug. In other words, the system was designed to do that, and it couldn't do anything other than do what it does. So which means that the system is headed towards a giant train wreck, unless you can somehow change course. So there's a quote from Keynes that I think about a lot, uh, certainly thought about a great deal when I was Confusing of monetary metals. And the quote, everybody understands, you know, everybody in the gold community is familiar with the beginning of the quote when he says, There's no surer way to overthrow the capitalist order than by debauching the money. Everyone assumes he's talking about, you know, printing more money and uh, prices go up and everybody is robbed of their savings by uh, inflation. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all, nor do I think inflation, so called, is really that big a deal. I mean, if that's what it is, it's a tax. And it's a tax that's running at 2% a year. We have a lot of taxes in our world, and most of them are much bigger than 2% a year. So if that's just a tax, then why don't we focus on the bigger taxes like income tax and social security tax, which are a hell of a lot bigger than that. But anyway, if the quote goes on and toward the end, it becomes a little more obscure and a lot less people are still reading that far into it. And he says, um, by engaging all of the hidden forces of economics, now today we would say incentives would be our word for hidden forces economics. By engaging all the incentives in favor of destruction, and not one person in a million can diagnose what is happening. And there, now there's your proof positive. It wasn't talking about rising consumer prices. Everybody, when consumer prices truly are skyrocketing, everybody's aware of it. I'm just old enough to remember, I was 12 years old in 1979, when literally every week we'd go to the grocery store, every price of every item that we bought was up noticeably up, even to a 12-year-old, from last week. So imagine going to grocery store, how many different things do you put in your shit soup, you know, in your cart, you know, for a family of four, you know, if I have 100 different items, right? Every item of everything is, is a higher price than last week, noticeably higher, but even a 12-year-old notices it. Every night on the nightly news, you know, they talk about, oh, today's going to be another scorcher, hazy, hot, and humid, and right after that, they talk about the misery index which is the combination or what they were calling the combination of unemployment and inflation. Everybody was talking about inflation every day. So to say that not one in a million could recognize it 
either Kings is really that blind and that stupid, which I don't think is the case, or that's not what he was talking about at all. So what do we have today? We have a world where interest rates fall to zero, which, by the way, was his prescription deliberately, purposefully to cause what he called the euthanasia of the rentier, which is basically killing the saver by depriving him of any yield on his, on his capital. And he says not one of them to diagnose us. Well, because he realized that the flip side of pushing the interest rate to zero is pushing the asset prices to infinity. In other words, an endless bull market. Why can nobody diagnose what's going on? Because it's a bull market. Everybody loves a bull market. And so I think he was absolutely a genius. Unfortunately, he used his genius for pure evil. And that's the world that we're in today, is asset prices going to infinity as a consequence of interest rates going to zero. But the saver, the poor saver, is getting euthanized because there's no return to be had on capital anymore. Um, all you can do is bet on, you know, on, on the price of whatever your favorite asset is. You can bet that it's going to go up. And everybody has their favorite theories as to which asset is supposed to go up under what circumstances. All the usual suspects are now talking about who the possibility that Biden may actually be the next president. They're saying, well, that's going to be more inflation. And so, you know, gold, buy gold now, gold's going to go up. You know, no, nobody's seen the, the deeper the deeper issue of the destruction of everything, uh, and nobody's seeing it. Right. And yields plummeting to zero. It's sort of like the frog being slowly boiled. People aren't raising alarms about it as much. Is that something that monetary metals is going to be able to make a difference? How you know monetary metals affect um, yields and and stop this euthanizing of the savior uh, the saver? So, um, kind of a complicated, multi-part answer. Um, the first is that you can do a lot to manipulate the interest rates in paper. In fact, you can even make the interest rate go negative, which is an unnatural thing. It's almost like, what if gravity pushed you off the, off the Earth rather than pulled you down to the ground? There's nothing in our brains, nothing in our biology, nothing in our education or background that would prepare us as gravity were repulsive. I mean, basically, you would need a rope to tether you to the ground, otherwise you would uh, fly off into outer space. So it's just a bizarre world that, you know, you're not prepared to live like that, right? So uh, in paper, you can, you can, it's been proven, right? I mean, in, in Europe, in Switzerland, in Japan, the interest is negative. So it's now proven that central banks can manipulate things that, that grossly, that badly, that uh, you know, the interest rate is negative, but not in gold. And the reason is, in paper, the paper is irredeemable. If you want to hold money, I mean, you could buy real estate, you could buy an antique Ferrari, you could buy old scotch and a cast, you could buy a painting by Pablo Picasso. But if you want to hold money, or what is deemed to be money, whatever it calls money, without thinking about the meaning of the word too precisely, there is no way to opt out. To hold what is called money is to be a creditor, and your only choice is who you're a creditor to. So if you hold a dollar bill, first of all, I want to point out the word bill is an archaic word that means uh, credit. The dollar bill doesn't say bill on it. Uh, that word does not appear in print anywhere on a dollar bill. It says Federal Reserve Note. Note is also a word meaning credit. And so if you hold a dollar bill, you are a creditor to the Fed. And the Fed uses that credit to extend it on to the government and the big banks. So you're, you're a creditor for the government and to the banks by holding a dollar bill. You don't 
there's no way to opt out if I just want money. Now you can deposit that dollar bill in the bank, and now you're a creditor to the bank. You could buy a treasury bond, now you're a creditor directly to the treasury rather than indirectly to the Fed. But you basically have a choice of being a creditor to a bank, the government directly, or the Fed, which is the government indirectly. And that's it. You, you can't opt out. And so that's, that's important because that means there is no real choice between lending and not lending. And for instance, if the interest rate were to fall, you have no way of expressing, you know, through a trade, uh, I don't like this. Okay, you don't like it, that's nice, but there's no teeth to your dislike. It is what it is. Tough, you know, just deal with it. In gold, to own a gold coin and take it home and put it under the mattress is to refuse to be a creditor, is to call your credit due and walk away, is to take your marbles home out of the sandbox and let the other kids play, but you say, I don't like uh, the terms in the sandbox, I don't like that bully kid who's beating everybody up stealing their marbles. I'm going to take my marbles and go home. And so in gold, if somebody chooses to bring their gold to the market and lend it, that's a choice that's reflective of the fact that he could, always has the option to keep his gold coin at home, or he can bring it only if he likes the terms on offer, which includes obviously the risk and the interest rate. And so the interest rate in, in gold cannot be manipulated in the same way as in paper because the person always has the right to walk away. So that's, uh, so, so I guess the first point is the interest rate of gold is, is a fundamentally more honest assessment of the market than what occurs in paper today. And I, I think that's a really important feature. Number two, if you owe an ounce of gold and you hand somebody a gold eagle coin, you have extinguished the debt. Not only do you get yourself out of the debt loop, the debt goes out of existence. If you hand that person you know, the equivalent in Federal Reserve notes, $1,900 roughly at, the, at this moment at least, you get yourself out of the debt loop, but the debt is still there. Now the Fed owes this party. Then they deposit the $1,900 in the bank. Now the bank owes them and the Fed owes the bank. And then the bank buys the treasury bond because that's what banks do. And now the treasury owes the bank and the bank owes the party. And so it, it, it's a circular you know, scheme. There's no way out. So what monetary metals is trying to do is to redevelop a market for gold credit and gold bonds, if the theory is right. So we can ask people, if you had a choice between giving up, let's call it $200,000 today to a borrower, and you had a choice, same borrower, same credit risk, and same everything. <clears throat> in one case, a borrower is going to return to you $200,000 in 10 years, uh, and, and during which time they'll pay you interest. In the other case, the borrower is going to return to you 100 ounces of gold, and during the time they're going to pay you interest. Which would you choose? Well, it's a rhetorical question. I mean, most people choose gold because the gold has a known you know, value to it. It's a tangible thing, whereas the dollar, nobody has any idea what a dollar is going to be worth in 10 years. So by, by recreating this market, it makes it possible for debts to be extinguished, which is really the feature that leads the world out of this mess um, and is fundamentally attractive to investors. I got to say, I think that's a, a very audacious, bold mission uh, that you're on in monetary metals. Uh, attempting to restore a sound monetary system by bringing gold back into it. Keith, going back to Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, clearly their world wasn't so different from ours. Things were falling apart. Um, their monetary system 
was collapsing and their, their economy was collapsing. Is there, just curious, as we come to a close here for this episode, is there a character that you uh, particularly identify with in that novel of Atlas Shrugged? I kind of like all three of the you know, heroes, the you know, protagonists. Dagny Taggart, the industrial executive, you don't get to see very much of him, but Ragnar Daniskjold, the pirate who's righting the wrongs and um, sticking it to the looters, and John Galt, the philosopher and phys- physicist who starts out by inventing this motor that you know, could revolutionize the world, and then when he realizes what the real problem is, he you know, he takes action to try to change the world, and um, ultimately that's what I'm trying to do. So I, I don't necessarily say, well, I'm John Galt. I, I think that's you know I'm Keith Weiner. I'm not John Galt, but I I look to that not as a model. I mean it's a fiction you know book, and there's only so much analogy to the real world, but I, I get I guess I get a certain inspiration from looking at what he did and saying, yeah, I could change the world. Here's what I can do. And that's that's what I'm doing. I'm putting my, you know, I'm dedicating this whole phase of my life to trying to affect a particular change because I think it's that important. You know, that's what John Galt did. Well, uh, I think that's very admirable. This has been the Gold Exchange. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.